0: Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's Private Equity Practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast. I'm Todd Kinney, National Relationship Director in BDO's Private Equity Practice, based here in New York City. This is our 25th episode of the podcast, a significant milestone we're thrilled to reach. And like all of our episodes, today's discussion is sure to be nothing short of robust. As a side note, the remarks and opinions of our guests do not necessarily represent BDO's views. With that said... I'm excited to welcome our two guests to talk about opportunities they're seeing in this market environment, among other topics. First, I'd like to welcome Daniel Schwartz, Principal at CIP Capital. Thanks for joining us today, Daniel.
0: Thanks, Todd. Good to be on the pod and perfect for my work-from-home setup.
1: Yeah, awesome. Next, I'd like to introduce Adam Gross, who's a Managing Director at JEGI. Thanks for spending part of your day with us, Adam.
2: Good to be here. Glad to be a part of this and uh, nice to be working out of my, uh, out of our offices in in Midtown Manhattan.
1: Yeah, it's, it, it's nice to see uh, New York City in your background. I can vouch for the fact that you're in there. So it's great having you both here. Let's get right into it. Uh, Daniel, I'll start with you uh, for a few uh, introductory remarks. As a uh, principal at CIP Capital, could you tell our listeners uh, about your firm and your role there?
0: Sure. Thanks, Todd, and thanks again for having me on. Uh, CIP Capital is a middle market private equity fund focused on investing in tech-enabled services. And really what that means for us is everything from traditional services companies that leverage technology in some significant form or fashion, all the way to true software or SaaS companies. We are typically investing in proven, profitable, and growing companies. We are typically executing buyout transactions and after Closing an initial deal, or as we refer to it, a platform, instituting significant organic and inorganic investment programs. Um, So to give you a sense um, across 15 portfolio companies to date, we've done over 60 add-on acquisitions. um, And maybe to wrap up to the other part of your question, as a principal, I'm involved in all phases of the investment lifecycle. Everything from building industry specific investment theses in partnership with executives, sourcing and executing transactions, and then working on portfolio company management, which really means staying with my companies and serving on the boards um, of those businesses.
1: Got it, thanks for the overview, Daniel. Adam, over to you as a uh, managing director again at JEGI. Can you tell us more about the company's focus and your role over at JEGI?
2: Sure, so uh, JEGI has been around for 32 years now. It's a middle market investment banking firm, uh, primarily focused on sell side M&A. Uh, we do some buy-side work as well, and some late-stage capital raising. Um, but uh, we represent uh, companies, whether they be, uh, you know, strategically owned so divestitures, or whether they be uh, owned by private equity firms like CIP, or whether they be privately owned, uh, across the broadly, co- you know, call the media, marketing, information, uh, and tech-enabled services sectors. So very strong overlap with uh, with CIP in their coverage area um, we've got about sixty five folks globally across five offices. my day to day is I'm um, a managing director here and a partner at the firm I uh, you know oversee and manage uh, transactions from start to finish and uh, you know look forward to uh, having a discussion today
1: yeah no I appreciate that i I certainly think your role as a uh strategic advisor representing both buyers and sellers is really gonna offer a a unique uh, perspective to our conversation. So great to have you. So for this next question, I'm gonna turn back to Daniel for a moment. Uh, I certainly know your firm well and uh, know that you invest in the uh, tech enabled business services sector. So perhaps you can describe what the path to recovery has looked like for that sector during the pandemic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, it's an interesting question. And as you talk to people in the market, um, it's great to get perspectives from different industries and then different um, individuals that have a different lens, right? Because you only work with your companies and then you're reading and you're talking to peers, but there's no generic answer to that question on how the recovery is happening. And certainly in tech enabled services, for us, that's a business model, but it's not an end market. So within each end market that we serve, we're experiencing it differently. So I'll give you a few examples. as, as kind of an overview comment, I'd say a lot of the business models we focus on have held up quite well. When you think about recurring software companies that focus on that, that provide mission-critical functions, those have held up well and they've kind of proved their worth in this COVID environment, if you will, on why they treat, trade trade at premium, you know, and even revenue multiples. In many cases, um, those software companies, in in many instances, as you would expect, have had depressed bookings. Right, less sales are happening but their churn has stayed extremely low and the revenue model allows it to be really consistent. So we have SaaS companies where bookings are down, um, but revenue is still flat to up and the EBITDA cash flow profile has been strong. Some other end markets we focus in that are kind of having their moment are ed tech. So if you think about ed tech and the migration to digital over time with um, COVID coming on, that's been accelerated. So if you own a high quality provider of digital solutions, you are the solution that, administrators at districts and teachers and students are trying to figure out right now. Um, so those businesses are really accelerating. Then I'd say on the other side of the coin, more traditional services companies are going to have their challenges. And those are going to be end market specific. Um, so we certainly have companies that fall into that bucket um, where revenue's been impacted. And I think we're we're seeing the recovery there. I'd say actually every company in our portfolio that's been impacted is somewhere on that recovery curve. Um, One of the nice things about those companies is that they do have variable expense structures, right? So they're having impacts to revenue, and that's impacting EBITDA and cash flow, but not as dramatically as one might think. Um, So I'd say we're seeing it across the board. And again, those comments are from my vantage point with the companies we're working on and what I'm absorbing in the market, but it's going to differ by whatever end market you serve.
3: Sure.
1: All right. Well, I appreciate those perspectives, Daniel. Uh, Adam, uh, let's pivot to you. Maybe you could give us an update on the m and environment in terms of which sectors you're seeing experiencing uh, headwinds and tailwinds, uh, and also how you're seeing COVID-19 uh, affecting valuations.
2: Uh, I don't think there's much of a surprise uh, in terms of you know, the sectors that have been you know, doing well uh, and those that have not. I think we've all seen uh, you know, the technology sectors Uh, You know, SaaS models, recurring revenue, um, you know, those businesses seem to have held up very well. You know, if you're in the e-commerce space, um, if you're in digital media, those have held up and performed very well. Um, You've certainly seen some uh, headwinds facing some of the media companies. So whether it be, you know, uh, print advertising or whether it be live events. and and you've seen some headwinds probably on some of the marketing services side uh, of the of the equation, whether it be you know ad spend, uh, and and whether you know groups are pulling back their spending in this environment, um, you know, for media companies that have live events, I think it's been a very interesting uh, time for those companies because what they've done is the you know successfully is transitioned from live events to. Uh, digital events, uh, you know, webinars, podcasts. Um, and, and what they've found is that they can do that successfully. Uh, unfortunately, they won't get the same revenue dollars that they will in a live event, but they will get stronger margins. So you can hold up on the margin side of the, of the equation, but lose some on the revenue side of the equation. Um, and, And what impact has this had on valuations? I would say that valuations have actually stayed fairly constant coming out of COVID, but those companies that have been impacted on the revenue and or EBITDA front may be seeing a little bit of a different valuation against the same multiple. So For example, if you were doing $10 million of EBITDA before COVID, and you're now doing $8 million of EBITDA, you may still get a seven times multiple, but it's off of eight versus 10.
1: Right, right. Makes a lot of sense, Adam. Thanks. Uh, Daniel, maybe we can get you to touch on uh, portfolio strategy in this market environment. I guess uh, two parts, you know, are you taking more of a net buyer or seller approach and and also, are you noticing uh, deals closing on a more condensed timeline? Uh, and if so, to uh, to what do you attribute that?
0: Yeah, no, those are great questions, and I'll I may hit them in a somewhat reverse order. But you know, if I think back, what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic um, was that the deal market stopped. If you had a company that was in market, it was most likely pulled. The debt market shut down, and rightfully so, everybody tried to focus on their portfolio. And honestly, their families and their personal situations. Um, so it wasn't the right time to be doing a deal on so many fronts. When we got to what I'm going to refer to as the middle of the pandemic, and I don't think that's something anyone could name at this point, but the beginning of the summer, we start to we we started to see it loosen up. Um, the debt market started to open back up, and if you had a company that thrived during the pandemic or even just um, fared okay, then it was potentially in play, and it became more socially acceptable to start engaging in transactions. And if there was a reason to be selling, you could bring your company back to market. But if there wasn't, there was always a question I can at least tell you from our committee's perspective on why is this company coming to market right now? But if you had an acquisition to do or you needed financing and there was a purpose to do a deal, those were getting done. I would also say add-on acquisitions continued through most of the pandemic. And I think when you take a step back, the reason for that is because they're strategic deals. So if you have an existing platform and a strategy and you know where you're trying to go and you've already identified the companies, if buyer and seller both understand as best they can where the space is, you can still do a deal if you have the capital to do it. So we saw add-on acquisitions continue. Um, fast forwarding to the other part of your question as to what we're seeing in the market now and if we're a net buyer or seller, we're both. Um, I, I think we're gonna continue to see add-on acquisitions get done. It's been in vogue in private equity for a long time. It's a great um, way to build value. It's a big component of the strategy of our firm. And we've gotten several add-ons done during the pandemic. I think for new platforms, the bar is just going to be higher. Um, And as we head into year end and we see deal volume starting to come back, um, Todd, it's specifically the deals that did well during the pandemic or have already proven what their recovery path is going to look like. Those companies can be sold and they are in condensed timeframes. And that's one because you have this perfect storm of the election and changes in tax consequences. So folks feel like they have to get deals done. And I think the other is if you're actually willing to take the risk to sell your company, you're still afraid of the pandemic. So if you're going to enter into a process, you're talking to less parties, it's a condensed timeframe and you need certainty that it's gonna get done. If a process goes for three or four months, when will the next spike happen? When will you get shut down? So. It, again, it really is a perfect storm as to why I think deals are happening on condensed time frames, albeit it's gonna be at a much lower volume.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> well, I'll, uh, I'll thank you both. We've uh, really already identified some useful takeaways for our audience thus far. So nice job guys. Next, I'd like to turn it over to our Coffee Break guest, Mike Stevenson, who's a partner and national leader of BDO's accounting and reporting advisory services practice. Mike is based in our Dallas office. Let's hear what Mike has to say.
3: Thanks, Todd. I'm Mike Stevenson, and today I'm here to talk with you about why more companies have pursued SPACs as an exit strategy this year and how the latest SPAC activity returns compare to traditional IPOs over the year. Special Purpose Acquisition Companies, or SPACs, have been making major headlines. The uptick in SPAC activity this year is significant, and the SPACs' relevance in the capital market space today cannot be ignored. SPAC activity is really a corollary of the general IPO market, which has had to adjust due to the business environment changes during COVID-19. During the COVID-19 pandemic, SPAC deals have even accelerated at a record-breaking pace. To take a step back for a moment and provide some context, in 2019, there were 59 SPAC listings on the NASDAQ and the New York York Stock Exchange combined, raising $13.5 billion, according to DealLogic. SPACs are now massive players in the deal-making space, having already raised $26.5 billion so far this year across 67 different listings, that according to website SPAC research. That um, that number is nearly double the amount of capital raised in all of 2019, and this also includes the highest average SPAC volume of dollars at $407.4 million. Bloomberg News says that SPACs comprise 23.7% by count of all IPOs, over a million dollars, and 19.4% by volume in 2019. There are some advantages to SPACs in light of COVID-19. For investors, SPACs are seen as a relatively low risk as they can recoup their finances and the potential for returns are higher than ever given the access to capital, low interest rates, and ability to move quickly to close an acquisition. This provides target companies with the potential to grow exponentially despite the economic downturn as companies continue to seek access to additional capital. The valuation volatility and the relative ease-to-market nature have also contributed to the explanation of what's driving SPAC activity as an alternative to IPOs. Companies in need of liquidity for their investments can turn to SPAC because it's an easier path for the price-to-earnings-to-growth ratio. What's more? During the COVID crisis, when travel restrictions and other changes have introduced more stumbling blocks into the traditional IPO route, SPACs have become even a more viable alternative. However, others will claim that the rise in SPACs is more about broader market factors than increased efficiency. There's still a view that the markets are volatile and even though there's been overall growth. So if a target's goal is to raise capital and become a public company, one thing that the SPAC route does versus the traditional IPO is it creates slightly more certainty in its continued price. We're seeing more companies becoming interested in going public via SPAC because they see SPACs as an accelerated vehicle to get their deal done. There are some regulatory issues and other considerations. Despite its benefits, the SPAC IPO process and the DSPAC transaction are highly regulated and complex transactions that require experience, and intensive preparation. A SPAC must still comply with its recurring SEC filing requirements despite having little or no operations. Education is always important for SPAC sponsors to stay compliant with complex regulations. Companies and their management teams should ensure they have trustworthy and experienced legal, capital, and accounting advisors in place for a smooth transaction. Rushing through the process without the right knowledge can put a successful outcome at risk not to mention potential loss of funding and loss of reputation among supportive investors. For PE firms that are figuring out how to respond to the growing SPAC trend and field questions from companies that they've already invested in, they should take the time to invest in relationships they anticipate some of those portfolio companies will find attractive. So perhaps they can both assist with the IPO. Many investors may ask themselves, how does long-term SPAC performance compare with that of a traditional IPO? Well, according to two respected sources, we noted the following. Of the 313 SPAC IPOs since the start of 2015, 93 have completed mergers and taken a company public. Of these, the common shares have delivered an average loss of negative 9.6% and a medium return of negative 29.1% compared to the average aftermarket return of 47.1% for traditional IPOs over that same time period. Only 29 of the SPACs in this group, or 31%, had positive returns as of September thirtieth, 2020. The average return on SPAC deals in the last year has also been positively impacted by DraftKings and Nicola rising 17%. Those data points are just something to consider for investors trying to determine their path. The question is, will history continue to repeat itself? Thanks for listening, and now back over to you, Todd.
1: Thanks a lot, Mike. Now, let's return to our conversation with Adam Gross and Daniel Schwartz. Daniel, this next question is gonna go to you. Uh, As part of your role at CIP Capital, uh, I certainly understand you're responsible for both completing new investments as well as serving on the boards of companies afterwards. Maybe you can tell our listeners a bit about your work in that capacity and take us through some of the challenges and successes your businesses have experienced.
0: Absolutely. Um, As you noted, Todd, a big part of our business, especially for a middle market firm where you don't have separate groups that do different things, but everybody does everything is portfolio company management. Um, Our approach is pretty hands-on with our companies. We really like to get, get in and understand the current state of play, develop a thesis with the management team, and then support them in that execution um, but that's an important distinction. We support, we don't we don't execute. We don't run the portfolio companies, we're not involved in day-to-day operations and you know we like to joke if we are, something's gone wrong and it hasn't happened to date and you know we hope it doesn't in the future. Um, I, I think one of the things that we've learned is identifying the right industry executives to support our management teams, typically in the form of independent directors, is critically important. and it's important to do it early on in the investment. They can help you build strategy, they know more about, these spaces than we're ever going to. Um, and it's a helpful dynamic for the management team. Um, while we are hands on with our companies, sometimes it's helpful to have an independent voice um, who has gravitas, who can really help um, the executives reach their full potential and run the company. The second thing I'd say is invest early and overinvest. If there is a, an opportunity to consolidate platforms or a need to consolidate platforms, if you're on the wrong ERP system, if you don't have the right management team to run a business three times the size, make those changes early. Um, and, and that may sound harsh, but it's not in the best interest of the management team, your clients, or your employees to try to grow a business from 30 million of revenue to 120 million in revenue with the wrong people in the seats. And we've learned that lesson the hard way. So I think making those changes early on um, sets you up for success.
1: All right. Well, very interesting per, uh, perspectives there, Daniel. I, uh, you're, you're sharing a little bit of the, uh, the secret sauce that our listeners can leverage. So we always appreciate that. Uh, Adam, I'm gonna throw this next question out to you. So COVID-19 has forced companies to pivot their operations in order to keep the lights on, that we know. Uh, I know you have some insight on media companies and in particular, Live event companies, like you've already mentioned. Uh, what specific maneuvers stand out as far as uh, how these businesses have pivoted or transformed as a result of the pandemic?
2: Yeah, so, um, you know, as I kind of uh, alluded to a little bit earlier, um, you know, companies with live events have pivoted to, uh, you know, digital events. And, right. um, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty around that. I think back in March, when uh, COVID started to impact the marketplace, uh, a lot of companies started to plan for maybe live events starting over the summer. Um, you know that really didn't happen for uh, for a number of reasons, uh, as everyone is probably aware. And um, you know, so the, the transition to you know digital really uh, needed to happen pretty quickly because it was clear those live events were not coming back anytime soon. Um, and what companies have uh, found is that uh, they can get uh, a lot of audience at these digital events. It's it's it it can attract even more people than the live event because you don't have to travel, you don't have to you know block out a lot of extra time on your calendar. You can you know you can block out a two hour window and from your home computer and 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 participate. Um, they found the sponsors. Are eager to continue to reach their audiences and get their messaging out into the market, and you know, drive business and ensure the marketplace that they're still in business and and have a vibrant business. And they they want to be part of a community. They don't want to lose you know that uh, touch point and that network. So um, all of that's really very positive, and the experience online. It can be a little clunky at times, but overall, you can make it pretty smooth. And there's a, a number of solutions out there that will enable you to do a lot of cool things online, like live chat. Uh, you know, having uh, global speakers from all over the the planet. Um, you know, a lot of different things. You know, different types of sponsorship links and and uh, logos can be placed in different in different places. It's you know, it, there's so there's a uh, an interesting aspect to the digital environment. Uh, that maybe didn't exist in the live environment. Um, the the key is, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, is, look, the dollars are just not quite the same. They don't translate dollar for dollar. You're, you're going to bring in fewer revenue dollars, but at a much higher margin, because obviously you don't have to feed these 500 people or 1,000 people. You don't need to rent uh, hotel rooms or a meeting space. Uh, there's a ton of savings in having it in a digital environment. Don't get me wrong, there is a cost to a digital event uh, that you, you do need to either build a, pro, a platform or, or subscribe to a platform. And there's a cost to that. But it's not close to the cost of um, what a live event would cost. And so you are seeing stronger margins. The other key uh, area that media companies have uh, pivoted pretty rapidly is into digital just overall and making sure they're getting their content in front of their audiences in a digital environment. And they may still put a print product out there, but uh, really important, especially with everyone home, and you know, a print product may be going to your office, right? It may not be coming to your home. So um, really critically important that you get e-newsletters out uh, robust websites, you know, robust, uh, you know, places where folks can engage with your content online. Yeah. Lots
1: of good insight there, Adam, much, uh, much appreciated. Uh, let's move to our last theme of the day. And, uh, these topics are, are for both of you to answer. So one of the uh, takeaways in BDO's recently released private capital pulse survey corroborated the trend that private capital has pivoted toward, uh, growth equity, and really follow-on investments. In fact, we found that 57% of PE and VC fund managers are employing a growth equity investment strategy, and add-on acquisitions are actually up 7.5% over last year. So I guess what I'm getting to is a two-part question for both of you. How much longer do you see that trend continuing, and is there an opportunity for platform deals to get done? Uh, Daniel, why don't you kick it off, and then we'll have Adam weigh in.
0: Great, thanks, Todd. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised it's only up seven and a half percent. I guess if you think about it from a deal volume perspective, that does make sense. But as a share of total deals, I'm sure add-ons are up materially versus what they were last year because <clears throat> there are just many less platforms getting done. You know, I commented on this. I commented on this a little bit before. The pandemic is driving investors to invest where they're most comfortable and they have a lower risk for error, and that's going to be with an existing portfolio company. You know the management team, you know the space, you have a set strategy, and perhaps product expansion or geographic expansion or whatever it may be is part of that strategy. So, executing on these add on acquisitions during the pandemic, you're still gonna feel pretty good about it. And you may even have the ability to look past short term blips in the business because you either have a better sense of where the market's gonna be on the other side of this, um, or because you have certain cost synergies that you typically would bake into the deal that still allow you some flexibility to get a deal done. So I do think add-on activity is going to stay very robust into next year. Uh, That said, platforms are coming back and they're going to be back. You have tons of capital out there in the private markets that needs to be deployed. CIP Capital is going to continue to do new platforms just like other firms are. Um, I do think, depending on how the pandemic plays out, there are gonna be certain markets, of course, that are more in favor than others. But I do believe that headed into the end of this year and into next year, Pandemic pending, um, you're going to see new platform investments completed.
1: Yeah, makes sense. Adam, care to uh, weigh in?
2: Yes. Uh, so, um, you know, we're, we're not definitely not seeing um, a lot of, you know, private equity uh, businesses coming to market as as new platform opportunities. There, there, there are some, uh, but we're not seeing. Uh, a lot of them. And and I think it's the points that Daniel is saying in terms of, look, the uncertainty just makes it challenging to determine, you know, if right now is a good time to sell a a platform company. Uh, What we are seeing is um, strategic divestitures. So either A, uh, you know, companies need cash or B, they're getting rid of underperforming assets or assets that don't fit their, their, you know, ongoing growth strategy. Uh, There's just, you know, portfolio uh, re-strategizing and restructuring going on in the market. Um, And then we're also seeing private sales, especially at the end of the summer, we saw kind of a wave of private sales due to the potential uh, change in capital gains tax that could be coming in 2021 uh, from, you know, uh, the potential shift in the political environment of the country, right? So uh, the the census is that if uh, Biden were to win and if the uh, Democrat, Democrats took the uh, Senate and potentially the Senate and the House, um, there would likely be changes in capital gains tax. It could get as high as your income tax level from a current level that's closer to kind of 20, 22%. So you could be seeing literally a 17 to 20% increase and cap gains taxes, uh, and that drove private uh, sellers to sell their, you know, want to sell their companies this year, um, and so we saw a wave of that towards the end of the summer. But uh, there's definitely a hole in the market, in our view, in terms of new platform opportunities. If you've got a a, a strong business. You know that's doing you know of of size of scale that's doing kind of 10, 15 plus million dollars of EBITDA, that's you know performed well or reasonably well through COVID. There's a strong appetite in the market for that type of opportunity. Uh, you will see uh, a lot of both PE and strategic interest in those types of opportunities, and uh, and you know there is a hole in the market for that for those types of businesses.
1: All right. <clears throat> Thanks, Ian, Adam, and Daniel. Uh, really excellent points on the uh, the last topic. So much to my uh, own disappointment, we're uh, we're coming down to the last question for both of you. Uh, we usually like to include a crystal ball type question in each episode. So here we go. I guess we'll uh, start with Adam and, and and then go to Daniel. Adam, what's your outlook for middle market M and A as we close out twenty twenty and step into twenty twenty one? What do you what are you thinking?
2: So um, I think it's going to depend on what happens next week. Uh, you know, I think, um, I think, first of all, I think it'll help to get past next week. I think there continues to be uncertainty driven by the political situation right now in the, in the country. Uh, so you've got almost like a dual-headed uh, uh, uncertainty animal in the market, right, With, between COVID and the political environment. Um, you know, and and investors do not like uncertainty. They, they want to know what they're facing and then they can, you know, uh, risk assess against that and decide what they, how they want to play their cards against the, you know, what the knowledge that they have without the knowledge, they can't figure out how to play their cards and they don't, so that they're going to sit on the sidelines and wait until they can, you know, until they have that knowledge. And I know Daniel, uh, shaking his head, I think he probably, you know, agrees with this. In terms of, look, you know, it's hard to know if you're a seller or a buyer, or, or you know, where to put your capital to work if, if, if you don't know, uh, you know, what the tax situation is going to be, where, you know, which, what type, of, you know, what type of sectors the government is going to support, uh, you know, etc. So, um, I think once we get through next week, it's going to be clearer. I think if we go Democrat across the board we're in for a tough 2021. Uh, I think the cat, the tax changes, um, there's going to be a lot of, uh, of pullback, I think in spending, uh, and investment. Um, I think it's, it's going to be, it's just not going to be good for business. Um, if we split it up somehow, whether it be a Republican Senate or a Republican house or a Republican president or a mix of the two, uh, then uh, I think we should probably get back to business as usual, assuming we can kind of figure out how to wrangle COVID um, and and kind of you know work around the edges of, of COVID. Um, and that would mean I think uh, you know kind of a uh, um, you know a start to a recovery year. So you know if you think about the last recession, you call it 09, you know 10, you know we started to really um kind of see oh 12 13 you know we started to get back to uh, you know volume of MA. i would say that that's probably what we could see next year if if we get a split in in the uh, in the government
1: right i guess for the uh, the listener's sake we are recording this episode of the podcast uh, exactly a week prior to the uh, November 3rd election so daniel please share your thoughts and uh, and uh, your outlook
0: yeah, um, I think Adam made a lot of really good points there. And maybe, you know, rather than doubling those up on the politics and taxes, I'll comment on COVID. I, I, and, and when I say that, I'm not going to give a prediction of what's going to happen with COVID by any stretch, but more how the deal market is going to react to whatever happens with COVID. It's not going to be a repeat of what happened at the beginning of the pandemic, right? At the beginning of the pandemic, nobody knew what was going on. Everything shut down and the world and the the deal market came to a stop. I don't see that happening again. So whatever level of COVID spike there is or isn't in the beginning of next year, I don't think that everyone is going to stay on the sidelines the way they were before. And I think it's going to be, in some cases, binary. If you're a market that has performed well during the pandemic or you've recovered, even if it's with bumpiness and, and has further bumps to come, I think investors that really follow those markets will start to get a better understanding of the range of outcomes which will make that an investable market. And so you'll see transactions happen. Valuation, we'll see, but you'll see deals happen. In other markets that did not really recover um, or were just starting to recover and get hammered again, that's a tough situation to invest into. Um, So if you're a motivated seller because you need to sell, I think there'll be deals to be had and you'll see some transactions get done. But if you're a private equity firm owner as an example and you don't have to sell a business and it's bouncing up and down, that's a hard time to get an effective exit. Um, and I think you need to rethink your exit planning at that point. I know we're gonna be talking about those things at CIP as a firm. So, you know, my crystal ball says there's gonna be more transaction volume than there was before, for sure. I think, as I've mentioned several times on this pod, add-on volume is going to continue. Um, and I think new platforms is gonna be very sector dependent.
1: All right, some good inputs there as well. I guess we'll have to, uh see what happens and uh, certainly remain cautiously optimistic in the meantime. So uh, Daniel and Adam, I really appreciate you joining the podcast today. It goes without saying that BDO certainly values our relationship with both JEGI and CIP Capital. Know you guys are busy, but uh, appreciate you joining. Listeners will will find a lot of this this info valuable. So thanks again to both of you. Appreciate your time, know you're busy. To our listeners, Thanks. thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show on iTunes. Until next time, this is BDO's Private Equity Perspectives. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms.
0: Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Perspectives podcast. For more information on how BDO supports private equity sponsors, funds, and their portfolio companies with a full spectrum of accounting, tax, and advisory services, please visit us at BDO.com. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you visit iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Join us next time for another edition of Private Equity Perspectives.